0: And we are live back with another episode of Shifting the Narrative on Everything Autism. I'm Torrin Kearns. And as usual, I'm joined by the Autism Sage herself, Mama Bavin. How are you?
1: I am. I don't know what I am. I'm so excited, Torrin. Like, seriously, I'm trying not to be like this goofy. I I kept saying all week, people keep talking about Taylor Swift and Beyonce. And I'm like, oh, I get to talk to Karen Rose this week. Like, Like, whatever. So I am doing wonderful. I'm excited for our listeners. And we have one of my favorite people in the world that is joining us today, Karen Rose. Uh, Karen, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners?
2: Oh, I feel like my head's now so big, I'm fitting up the screen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think I feel my, I have a naturally huge head. So every time we record, it's just my face it's like the heads from rick and morty to show me what you got heads so I, I, i've just become used to it at a certain point <laughs>
2: <laughs> we'll have a clash of heads now <laughs> <laughs> so um as you said my name is kieran rose um i am an autistic man uh, i've been diagnosed for about 20 years and um, i'm a consultant researcher advocate trainer author i Wear many, many hats and do many, many different things. Um, and that's pretty much me.
0: Your intros are, I always say this to guests that have great intros. If people listen, know I say it. Your intro is so good. It's so concise and hits exactly like who you are. Like, I'm always impressed because when people ask me for an intro, like, I'm terrible at it. So, do, do you practice that or is that just off the dome? Uh, I
2: hate talking about myself. <laughs> so, was I just keep it as short as possible.
1: <laughs> well, I, I would like for the listeners to know that Karen also wears the hat of dad, um, oh, yeah. homeschool navigator, I'm sure, and um, a husband as well. And Karen, I would love to, I love to share stories and I would love to share one of my favorite Karen Rose's stories. And I don't even know if you remember telling this story because I know that you, um, we just all talk and share. So I remember when you were trying to help us understand the sensory system and you explained that your sensory system when someone touched you, it felt like hot burning iron. And of course I immediately thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, children are pushing people away. They think they're aggressive. No, they're not aggressive. It could be hot burning iron. But I also remember you saying, clearly i figured it out because i have a wife and three children so somebody touched somebody <laughs> and so i share that story because parents really think if their child has a sensory aversion or a sensory sensitivity that they won't be able to do anything and i remind them adults have autonomy right you have autonomy over when how and who touches you now children don't so I just wanted to share that story, and with that, I would love for you to um, share a little bit about. You know, there's so many topics um, in regards to autism and masking and sensory, and I find that you do a phenomenal job of explaining the sensory experience. So, what was it about the sensory component that was so um, uh, so engaging for you that you had to dig more? Um, so that you could explain it to others
2: I think I think it was the pain really um and that's something that I've always felt um from as long as I can remember and even back when my parents could talk to me um my dad's dead and my mom's my mom has dementia now at the moment so so it's kind of you know can't really talk about childhood things anymore but they always described a baby that didn't like being handled, would cry when it was picked up and you know, like to be left alone. Was very happy left alone. Um, but really didn't like to be kind of cuddled and coddled and all of those kind of even changing nappies and stuff like that. Um so that pain element has always been a very, very present thing in my life. And it's always been something that other people have never really understood. And never understood my responses, you know, like randomly People touch like, if you think about a child in the classroom, kids are being touched all the time, particularly by adults, even just like a hand on the shoulder and things like that. And it's, it's for me, I mean, it's very different for every autistic person, how they perceive all sorts of different sensory stuff. But for me, um, skin-to-skin contact is immensely painful. Like you said, it's kind of like a, like a branding line that you would get on a cattle. It feels like that. It's that real burning, like you would expect something a mark to be there, like a burn mark to be there after someone's touched me. But even through things like clothes and things, even that, that pressure feels like a touch. So there's still an element of pain to all of that. Um, but there have been two people in my life that I've never felt that with. And one of them was my granddad who died when I was a teenager and um, who I used to clamber over and like, we, we used to, we, my sister and I used to use them as a climbing frame. I don't know how he put up with it. Um, and the other one is now my wife. <laughs> um, so, and my children, I, I feel pain when my children touch me, but there's still, there's an element there of I'm their dad and they need to touch me. So I have to push through some of those things sometimes. So, being with my wife is a very much a safe space for me and being alone with my wife and and being able to touch my wife, my wife being able to touch me, that's where I re-energize myself. And that's that kind of energizes myself to be in spaces where I can let my children clamber all over me like they need to and hug me. And you know, I have boundaries with them when it gets too much, I have to say like, dad's had enough now and you need to give me some space. And that as they've got older, they've understood that more. Um, But they've got their own sensory things going on, which are different to mine, but they're also kind of relatable for them as well. So they need their space and they need their boundaries around certain things too. And that's really helped them understand what their boundaries are around their sensory needs and things like that as well. So knowing that in my little family unit, that then became a really an avenue into a lot of the work that I do around masking and things like that, using that sensory experience to kind of actually help people recognize that, I'm in pain a lot of the time because I have Ellis danlos Syndrome, and um, so I have physical pain, but I'm also in pain a lot of the time around other people, particularly where there is that element of touch. So me having autonomy over that and having control over that has meant that I can take control over who I interact with, where I go, if I know I need to go into a space where it's likely that I'm going to be touched or bu- bumped into, then I can choose to do that. But like you said, our children don't have that kind of agency or autonomy. So it's something that we as parents need to recognise in them and help them understand, but also facilitate. How do we how do we engage that autonomy in with them? How do we give them agency as as young children? How do we empower them to be able to have boundaries with other people and say no to things and say no to going into those spaces? And I, and I think that's what the role of a parent is. It's not to bring up a child. It's to empower them. That's what our role is. We don't bring up children; we bring up adults. They they will end up as adults at some point, hopefully. So, uh, so the more empowered they are, the so the stronger boundaries they have with other people, the better relationships they're going to have, and the better mental and physical health they're going to have. It is that simple?
1: It is that simple. It is really that simple. Um, the hard part is getting folks to buy into that, but it really is that simple. And you know, I will say when I get parents to to make that shift. The whole world changes for everybody in the house. The whole world, the the trajectory of that child's life into adulthood has totally been just shifted, and it's such a wonderful
0: thing. Torin, do you have anything that you want to say? You know, I could just talk forever. I, I have a lot of stuff. Um, one of the things that you touched on already that I'd like to look more into. We. I'm trying to think of a nice way way of saying this. We don't have a lot of dads on the podcast. We always want to have dads of autistic people on the podcast. Sometimes it can be difficult getting them. And in general, in Stacy's work, it can be difficult getting them on board. So I always perk up a little bit. Especially someone like me, where I was raised as an autistic kid with a single father who's probably also on the spectrum. So th- that, that always piques my interest. What are... What are some of, you You went into this a little bit already, but what are some of the struggles you would say you have as an autistic parent, especially like as an autistic dad from that perspective?
2: Um, I guess one of the biggest things is the the clash of need uh, within the house, particularly around sensory stuff. Um, Because my children have very different uh, sensory experiences to me, then sometimes we have to compromise around kind of Where's, where does my pain stop and somebody else's pain begin? Or where does my pleasure stop where somebody else's pleasure has to begin? And, you know, finding that space from each other that, that sometimes is really, really important. And, but also coming together as well and learning how to kind of uh, um, align ourselves around our kind of sensory experiences and, and things like that, too. And I think, I mean, that's just a parenting thing generally. It's hard for me to think about it from a dad's perspective because it's, we're such a unit our little family and it's kind of there isn't really a dad role or a mom role or we we work in partnership with each other as a team Um, and yes obviously my wife and I have to kind of you know make decisions for the children sometimes and but we tend to make family decisions together and we tend to talk about the difficult topics and the hard topics we don't shy away from things in our house and when we do communicate you know if one of the children has an issue then we all talk about it or if there's big things going on in the world we talk about those big things and i think that's something very different from when i have kind of you know i support a lot of parents as well and looking around at how there is a real difference between what i would call autistic or neurodivergent families and neurotypical families where maybe those conversations don't happen and maybe there is more of a hierarchy than a than than exists within our household we do very much try to be a team and i think one of the things that, and I think this is just the dad thing generally. I was a stay-at-home dad with my first two for a, a few years, and um, my wife went back to work. She was the one who earned more than me, so it made more sense for me to stay at home with the kids. And that was a really difficult thing for other people to understand. Um, you know, it's not well. I don't know what it's like in America, but it's not usual it's usual for the man to be the one that stays like at home that with the children here too.
0: Unfortunately, yeah. people look at you uh-huh. twice. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and even with things like schools and things, um, so I would take the kids to school, I would take them to appointments, but everybody would ring my wife when they needed to talk to anyone. So it was it, it's kind of like I'm not into reverse sexism. I don't really think it's a thing, but it is a thing <laughs> there. Um, but automatically it's kind of other people fall into those kind of normative social roles and expect that other people are going to form into those as well. In actual fact, it was me that needed the appointments and it was me that needed the telephone calls and and all of that kind of thing. So I think that's a general parenting thing. Um, But again, the next level to that is being an autistic parent and then advocating for your children when you're being triggered constantly by the experiences of your children, Um, because they're going through very similar things that you went through as well. That again adds another kind of level to that. And I think any educationists out there need to recognize that that's a very real thing. And it's not that we're not able to advocate. It becomes very, I'm great advocating for other people's kids. My own children, it becomes much, much harder because it's too close. It's too personal and it's too similar to what I've been through. And that's not me saying I'm projecting onto their experiences because they're experiencing a lot of the things that I experienced as a child growing up and meeting those same kind of barriers and things like that. So I'm just waffling now, so I'm gonna. No, show. no, that
0: that's great. I believe we had a uh, a, a couple months ago. We had a, a parent couple on, a mom and dad, and mm-hmm. the dad was talking about how he'll be at the park with his with his kids, and like people will come up to him, it's like you're like people will come up to his wife and be like, "You let him just take the kids to park by himself?" As, a, as if like a dude isn't capable of doing basic stuff like cooking yeah. and yeah. taking the kids to the park and stuff like that it's it's and this is off topic but it's just a it interests me let's just say how we do, how we have these conceptions of, of different roles but uh stacy i'm sure you have questions i don't want to hog up the mic time
1: you No, know, no, i i so i i mean you know i'm like taking everything in and i know i get to watch the replay and listen to the replay but i when you talked about advocating for your own children. I think that is, I love that you said that because our listeners who, you know, some of our parents are undiagnosed autistic. Um, I could check off the ones that when I go to the home, I'm like, oh, okay, there's the DNA. But they are sometimes it's just anxiety. And so because of that emotional dynamic, it's hard for them to go to an IEP meeting, even though they know what... And that's where bringing someone with you to do that talking, because it is emotional. It's very emotional when people are sitting at a table, just checking off all the things your child can't do. And you're like, I know, but look what they can do. And nobody's listening. Right. Um, So what I would like for all the listeners to know about is the new book. Um, I was talking to Karen before we started recording and I said, I didn't know what to expect from the book. Um, I mean, I knew it was gonna be uh, great, but I didn't know what, it, the, what the direction, who the audience was or what the book was meant for. And when I started reading, um, it's a hearty book for those of you out there, it's not a bring to the beach and <laughs> let the kids play, um, unless you can really filter, but it's really, uh, I just feel, I was telling Karen, like this needs to be a course, like every speech therapist. I mean, my background is speech therapy, I would have loved if we had something like this, um, you know, in our uh, undergrad program. And I don't think it needs to wait until grad school. I think it needs to be folks who are coming out. Every therapist, whether it's a psychologist, educators, because it it is. So what did I I said? It's kind of like a facilitator for discussion. Right. It's not a this is what you need to do, this is what everyone needs. It's, wow, I didn't know that. Let's talk about how I can you know, support a student or a teen or an adult in the workplace. Um, and the book is called Autistic Masking. So can you explain um, a little bit about uh, the drive to write the book? Because I know you have a blog and you do lots of webinars. Uh, just sort of the reason why and who what was your reasoning or purpose for who you wanted to read the book
2: oh big questions <laughs> <I know. laughs> Um, so well the reason that the reason that we wrote i can't take all the credit for it because i have a co-author um amy pearson who is amazing and fantastic um and the reason that we wanted to write it was a few years well a few years ago we wrote a uh we published a paper. Um, which was called a conceptual analysis, which was really um, a way of gathering together all of our ideas around masking, Um, because we really felt that the masking narrative was going off in a direction which wasn't great. And it it was very, I hate to phrase it like this, but very neurotypically driven. Mm -hmm. And it was a a very neurotypical interpretation of what was happening for autistic people. Um, And so fairly quite superficial, I think, because of that as well and it was going off in di- different directions around kind of you know encouraging gendering autism and different phenotypes and and all different subtypes and which is not useful it's not it's not practical it's not the reality of what's going on it's and actually a lot of that is driven by very poor research narratives so we wrote this paper and it was 5000 words long and when you when you publish an academic paper you have to write a lot and then cut back and we found that immensely painful, because there was so much that we wanted to go into that paper that we we ended up having to cut out and the paper was has been amazingly received um to the point where a publisher approached us we didn't we didn't we knew that we want we knew that there was a book there, but we kind of were kept putting it off and putting it off because it's quite a hard process. So a publisher approached us and kind of said, "Would you like to write a book about this, and then we'll publish it and we were like, "Okay, that's probably the deadline that we needed in order to be able to actually put it down." Um, so they gave us a six month deadline, which we agreed to, um, which turned into a year and a half because it was just, it just kept growing and growing and growing.
0: That's always, so really, helped,
2: always Well, yeah, I know. I mean, it's the first book that either of us have written. So we didn't anticipate how difficult and how big and complicated it was going to be. Um, so when we wrote it, what we really, really wanted to do was have the kind of the main target audience to be academics because this narrative had gone off in completely the wrong direction. And it was, there was lots of misconception and misinterpretations and things going on in that narrative. So we wanted really a a kind of a big red flag waved kind of, so everyone would pay attention and think, Oh, maybe we need to reframe what we do. But at the same time, we both knew that, The audience that tends to kind of listen to me does include academics, but there's lots of parents, there's lots of other autistic people, and Amy has a bit of that platform as well. So we didn't want to exclude anyone else from that, so we wanted to make it as accessible as possible. So the way that we've kind of written it, which is what we were talking about at the beginning, before Stacey, before we came on, was... We wanted it to be a book that you could dip in and dip out of rather than one that you take on holiday and read by the pool or or, or read while the kids are running and playing around your feet. More of a study book, a study guide that does introduce topics and introduce chapters and draws information together so that then people can sit and think, I didn't actually think that that was connected to this. And, oh, I didn't realize that that was part of that. And, you know, that actually kind of, sits in the middle as a little indicator or a compass that that sends people off spinning in lots of different directions and actually draws them together to this central point because i've said for years and masking has very much been at the center of all of all the stuff that i teach and all the work that i've done over the the kind of last decade um that masking is central to the autistic experience for all autistic people and that superficial narrative has all been very much around people who can speak and people who can get jobs and but actually it's excluded lots of other groups not just those and but people from those groups but also people who maybe don't speak or people who have internet very intersectional experiences across different different kind of things about disability and race and culture and all of those different kind of things so loads of people have been excluded from this so we wanted that to be incorporated as well and broaden it out into very much an autistic experience rather than just a very specific experience for some autistic people because so much of the narrative around autism is exclusive. And it's very much focused on me as a stereotype, white, blue-eyed, brown-haired man, you know, all of those narratives are very much focused around me. And that's the last thing that we need because there's too many white <laughs> men narratives everywhere, you know, so we need to broaden that out and we really need to make it bigger. So that's where we really wanted to go with the book. And it's, its we were very glad when it was over the writing, put it that way. <laughs> Because it's about three hundred thousand words long, Jesus. and it could have been it could have been a lot more. That's, <laughs> um, that's, that's, you know, that's,
0: you, that's very impressive. Yeah, when you that include
2: is, all the citations and the, there's a big glossary in the end and introductions to uh, to uh, to uh, chapters and things, and when you include all those things, there's a lot of words in that book. So not quite as big as Neurotribes, but but close.
0: <laughs> well, as someone who's an inspiring author, I might forever be inspiring. Author. um, congratulations, because that's no easy task. My next question is going to be sort of a big one. So feel free to take time to answer. Don't worry about having a really long answer, because it's a really big, broad question. But we have an audience of a lot of parents, mm-hmm. obviously, who have autistic and neurodivergent kids. So I feel like you would be one of the best people to ask this. What exactly is autistic masking? i told you it was a broad question
2: (laughs) it is a broad question and you know i've i've spent years trying to define it down to a paragraph and i know stacy's been on some of my training so you'll have heard me say this that i'm never happy with the definition that i was trying to come up with and actually writing this book we've kind of realized that there is no single definition which encapsulates everything and one of the ideas that we introduce in the book is a notion called projecting acceptability which is Basically, if you think about someone who, on very many levels of their life, whether they know that they're autistic or not, is being stigmatized, is being treated slightly negatively in some way, and is being pathologized in different ways, and all of that is happening around you, and that really makes you unsafe. And one of the ways that you can become safer for someone else is to become predictable for them. So Projecting acceptability is this notion that actually you project an aspect of yourself which pleases the people around you or makes you safer for them so some of that might be suppressing aspects of who you are so if um you're an autistic person who stims very vividly it might be suppressing some of those stims or redirecting them into less notable noticeable stims i'm redirecting if
0: right now i have a fidget spinner on the desk you just can't see it on camera
2: <laughs> <laughs> you can see my hands going all the time my legs are going underneath the desk as well and like i have <laughs> Elastic bands that I'm constantly fiddling with, and all sorts of different things. And so, it might be suppressing aspects of that. It might be changing the way that you communicate with people. It might be trying to mirror other people's behaviours. It might be projecting aspects of yourself to fill a social niche. So, things that are usually excluded. Masking is usually usually talked about like people hiding, and but actually, it might be things like being the class clown that's putting on an act it's putting on a projection it might be that if you're someone who is dysregulated a lot of the time and other people expect things like challenging behavior from them well you give them what they want because that's what they expect from you and you then can predict what their behavior is going to be and how they're going to treat you so it isn't just what the traditional notion of masking has been about how to make yourself small, how to make yourself appear more neurotypical. But actually what we've done in this book is introduced a way of actually expanding that because not everybody can appear more neurotypical. Not everyone can make themselves small. Some people need to make themselves bigger. I had a client years ago, which really sparked off my thinking with this, who talked about when she was around non-autistic people she felt like she had to take her autisticness out and polish it in front of them because if she suppressed aspects of themselves they didn't know how to deal with her and then she didn't know how to deal with them but when she projected being autistic more autistic than she would normally be that gave them exactly what they expected she was the weird one the quirky one the odd one and that gave them what they needed they still treated her negatively, but sh- that was safe for her because she could predict how they were going to treat her and she knew how to deal with that negativity. And it, it's it's such a complicated thing, which is why we've written a big, huge book about it. But but really, that's what, what masking is for me. It's, um, it's why we use the picture of the chameleon on the front, because chameleons actually, they're, they're, there's a lot of misperceptions around chameleons. People think that chameleons just changed randomly depending on what their background is, and that's not what chameleons do chameleons are really emotional and are quite skittish and are quite dysregulated a lot of the time. So they change their skin and their patterns and their colors reflective of how they're feeling. And often that matches the environment. They seek environments that match how they're feeling. So there's a lot of emotion goes into being a chameleon and a lot of suppression and projection in the same way that being an autistic person involves a lot of suppression and projection as well.
1: I'm just stunned about the chameleon because that makes so much sense, right? Like it's doing it to protect itself. It's, it's just makes so much sense in the predictability of changing the color. So when you were saying all of that, you know, in the back of my head, it's like, I always think about parents who are raised in cultures, whether it's religious, whether it's your, where you live, some cultures, Like literally the culture is for you to mask whether you're autistic, like the culture is to be miserable, to to not be yourself. I mean, that's the whole point of the culture. And so when you when I describe it or try to help folks understand or say, you know, oh, watch the video that Karen um the webinar, and it's hard for them to find that to be difficult because they're like, Well, I mean, like in our country. If you're not miserable and stressed, then something's wrong. And I'm like, oh, okay, um, I don't know what to say. When when parents push back on masking or, and, and you know what? I'm not even going to say parents. It's, uh, you know, I, I get really emotional because I just, I have no patience for schools. I mean, I have no patience for schools and educators who think that the child sitting and masking all day is a great thing right and they're going home and it's just a nightmare so you know i think the point that you bring on it's not just sitting and following directions and sitting and sitting it's the kid who is being really big and why do they keep throwing the chair when they know they're not supposed to throw a chair and that you just made a very good point because it's predictable of what you will do they know exactly what you're going to do, and it's almost like making their own script for their day because they have no control over anything else. Um, On top so, of
0: that, when you do something big like throw a chair, if someone's needs aren't being met and someone's communications being blatantly ignored, you throw a chair. People are going to pay attention. They just are. It's one of those big, audacious acts that you can't really ignore. I have to say, <laughs> I
1: love a good chair throw. I, I, really <laughs> I, I love. I love kids who throw chairs because those are the kids I don't worry about because I know they're gonna they're not going to accept anyone walking all over them. They're going to fight their way through it. Yeah, they advocate
0: them. for themselves. That's yes, the one thing you- exactly. Oh,
1: right. It's the ones that are not that I worry about because they're just kind of like allowing it to happen. Um,
0: you know, case in, case in, to-
2: I was just going to say, Stacey, case in point, that was me. So when I was growing up, um I was the very, very quiet child who sat and was meek and kind of tried very hard. Well, well, I fawned. You know, if people asked things of me, I gave it to them and um, without even any question, even though it was maybe detrimental to me to do so. Um, and actually it kind of was. And I was never I was never a child that melted down. I was a child that shut down um until it, I got to my mid teens and my whole world blew up. Um and it 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 was literally the bottling up of everything that, that kind of exploded when I was about 13 or 14. And it, it's so those children that shut down are the ones that are necessarily more easily missed. Um, you know, because 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 they are in education, which is where we spend most of our formative <laughs> years, you <laughs> know, that that's that's a good thing to be the quiet child, to be the one that just gets on with things and that doesn't cause a fuss, isn't disruptive that's what educators want that's what the education system demands and it doesn't really matter if we're massively academic or not as long as we're quiet and we're good and we don't cause a problem so that's that's kind of that I absolutely agree with that the children that that shut down and the children that are very submissive and very quiet they're the ones that I worry about and I know that from personal experience so that's that's not a good thing to be
1: yeah and and listeners you know I like to tell you guys to rewind Rewind and listen to Karen say all of those years it bottles up, and then teen it just it shit hits the fan, as you know we say in the south, and you know Torin knows the reason that I get up every day screaming, yelling, or talking calmly or educating is because I don't want any more trauma autobiographies for the next generation of adults. I just I'm over the trauma autobiographies I want the wonderful, you know, story of being embraced. And I'm, I know that's my idealistic way of thinking, but I think that everybody deserves that. I think that it should be that way. And we're now just hearing about, you know, masking was, was something a few years ago, people started hearing the word and sort of catching on. And now they're realizing, oh, it's not just adults. Like, children who are autistic are masking as well and that is why the struggle later because you know the masking is something that the schools look for because they spend a lot of hours in school that does not allow them to do
0: what (laughs) or support their needs in any way shape or form Um, and it's
1: simple i mean it it's just so simple i don't
0: that takes work though stacy we're not trying to like teachers were like as teachers, we're not trying to do work, like we did work in like college and getting our masters, and now like we just want to like teach and not have to put in any extra effort I'm gonna stop, I feel bad I don't feel like I'm attacking teachers um, he went to twenty two different schools. he can complain about school. i went to I, I bounced her. so actually related to what I'm about to say. this sounds bad, but I almost 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 wish I was one of those kids that was just quiet because I was the kid who threw the chair constantly. Mm -hmm. That's why I kept bouncing around schools because my knees weren't getting met. I would just explode constantly Mm -hmm. like with regularity and in very loud ways. So I almost wish I was like that because when you explode, what they do in schools, they try to hammer you down and make you stop doing that. And my reaction would just be to explode bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, which is probably not good for your mental health either. So a small part of me wishes I was one of those quiet kids just so I didn't have to draw the ire of everybody. But that, but obviously, I understand how bad that is. But in your research, have you noticed that there's a difference in masking? Between, and obviously, I'm talking about in general, it's not on an individual level, between like uh, p- kids who present as female and kids who present as male. Because, for example, when I was growing up i'm thirty one or uh females weren't diagnosed as often with autism, it's, they're still not, but it's gotten better because it was seen like that explosiveness, that anger I was seen as having anger was seen as a masculine thing as mm-hmm. oh autistic people, he's autistic, so he explodes so have you noticed have you noticed a general trend of differences in masking?
2: This is a <laughs> this, 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 this this lands right on one of the reasons that we wrote the paper in the first place and why the book was written, um because both Amy and I struggled with that narrative around gendering autism, so of course, there's going to be differences between the experiences of people who are of one gender and people who are of another gender and then people who are of a third gender or fourth gender or whatever those kind of um, how we're socialized as we grow up plays a massive massive part in that um and then like you just said you know like it was it's it seemed more as the masculine thing to 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 be big and loud and and butch and and throw chairs around things like that but girls are not expected to behave that way and are not socialized to be allowed to behave that way in any way shape or form because they have to be the meek and the quiet ones and the caregivers and the you know so all of that thing so i have a a, a colleague and it's a line again that stacy will have heard me say before um a colleague of mine eleanor broadbent said something amazing to me years ago which i have completely stolen and taken as my own um but the way that she described what's happening in the identification of autistic people the difference between autistic boys and autistic girls um is that when what she the way that she said it is that when boys line up nuts and bolts and toy cars in a in an ordered and regimental way that's called autism when girls line up stuffed toys or put clothes in an ordered and colored way or a jet or an organized way that's called good housekeeping so (laughs) it's exactly the same presentation but completely different perceptions of what's going on based on society's ideas of how women should be behaving and how men should be behaving. So that plays a massive part in all of this. And so while autistic women and girls have completely been missed, the thing around masking is that, and this is really where Amy and I really kind of what really made us angry and what really made us inspired us to write all this stuff is that, the the research around masking grew up at around the same time as autistic women and girls started to get more of a focus. So around 2014, 2015, those two narratives really sparked off at the same time. So what lots of academics did then was turn around and say, oh, we've now got a reason why we didn't see all these autistic women and girls, because they were hiding from us all the time. What they completely ignored is that we've had a century of autism research, which hasn't even bothered to look at autistic women and girls. It's only focused on boys, white boys, white boys who present in a particular way, mostly. So anybody else has been excluded from that narrative. And autistic women and girls are the biggest group that have been excluded across the board for everybody. So, so while yes, there are maybe differences in, in how some groups present in terms of masking and things and what they project, because I think a lot of that is explained away by those social norms and by those social expectations. I don't think it's an inherently, this is a boy thing, this is a girl thing. It's the expectations and the pressures that are put on boys and girls as they grow up and as they are socialized and what those expectations are. And that grows into adulthood. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier, you know, as a stay at home dad, I experienced a lot of sexism. Um, you know which is which is not systemic sexism and it isn't massively oppressive sexism but it's still definitely sexism because i was expected to behave in certain ways and my wife was expected to behave in certain ways and we didn't match that so i think a lot of those differences are there i've met plenty of autistic women and girls who throw chairs around you know or, or, or or do the things that we might commonly think oh that's autistic behavior whereas i as a man Don't behave in ways which are stereotypically autistic all of the time. So, you know, so and it very then much comes down to all of this needs to be massively individualized as well, because we are all individual human beings experiencing the world in very, very different ways. Although we have shared and relatable experiences, some of our experiences are very different and we don't know enough around what's going on on an individual level to be able to say oh you're part of this group or you're part of that group or you know those things are are different things because often they're connected they just maybe look a little bit different or we interpret them a little bit differently so I think it's a much more it's a deep conversation that needs to be had around that and it isn't a deep conversation that's happening it's not a nuanced conversation so so yeah I I don't know if that answers your question at all Tyrone but that's kind of where my head is with it
1: it. (laughs) It reminds me of the 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 concept of the female boss that rah 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 is a bitch. But when the guy goes rah 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 rah, he's like, you know, a leader.
0: He's a leader. <laughs> he's commanding. He he yes. knows what he wants.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's based on uh yeah, even though oh my gosh society 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 I and i don't...
2: mean even when you think um i mean intersectionality is an important narrative all through we've yes. made sure that that, would, that was at the heart of everything that we were writing making sure that mm-hmm. we weren't well trying very hard not to exclude people and make sure that we were at least nodding to the fact that this isn't a white experience that there's very all white male experience there's very much very different people experiencing very different things and if you think about like the narratives around the angry black woman and things like that, all of those are all playing a part here, you know. And, and the fact that, that that if you are a, a black boy, you are more likely to be given a behavioral diagnosis than an autism diagnosis, oh, yes. you know. So, I, so, I've so, read so, my so much...
0: movie, I, in America, we have think of IEP, educational, uh-huh. educational individual, whatever it's called. Um, basically, list all the things that's wrong with you for your school, and I've read because. I have all of them saved, most of them saved when I was a kid, along with all my psych valuations. As a mm-hmm. Black male, it said all of that stuff. Everything was behavioral-based. I was diagnosed with everything under the sun. Some of it I actually have. Most of it was ignored because yeah. they focused mainly on the autism and the behavioral aspect. Because like I said, I was the kid through the So everything nice. was based on making Torrin not explode as much and do what he's told. Yeah.
1: Yep. I, I read an IEP for a five-year-old and I I looked at it and I had to stop reading it because I said, every single goal is behavior. The science goal is behavior. The speech goal is behavior. I don't understand that wh- where's the academic part and the school had, they were clueless because all they thought was behavior,
0: but I want to bring up Stacy before, uh-huh. before, before we shift, oh, I just ahead. want to add one more thing to what you were saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few months ago, Stacy showed me because she works with with kids in schools and stuff, and she showed me a contract that school made a twelve year old boy sign, where he would lose his um, fidgets and things he'd use self regulate. He it was written that I will do this, I will do that, and if I don't do these X, Y, and Z, I will lose my fidgets. And they made they wrote a contract and made him sign it, which which isn't a contract then if you're being forced signed under duress mm-hmm. and. That upset me so much because that's this kid's 12. So what we're teaching him, especially as a boy, is someone who whoever holds power over you gets like gets to do what they want. The only thing that matters is that you call the shots. And I'm like, and I sarcastically I remarked on the pod, next podcast episode we did. I said, I'm sure that won't teach him anything about power dynamics. I won't teach him any like negative things about needing to be in control of everything and control of other people. Because what that what we're teaching our kids is, if I have power, teachers and administrators, we have power over you. We can make you do what you want. We can make you uncomfortable. We can ruin you if we want, and there's mm-hmm. nothing you can do about it. Then you grow up, and you're like, well, I need to be in control of everything then, especially with boys. I, because the behavior thing is such a big piece. I need to control everything and everybody around me because I was hurt as a kid. And most of us don't even have the words the language even suss through all that we just think okay i need to be control 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 so i, I just need to mention that because stacy was mentioning uh behavioral plans stuff like that it's it's messed up and it, 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 you it know,
1: the the i'm so sorry Kieran. the point that i was going to make is exactly what you said in regards to um and i've heard you speak a little bit about this karen um, which is one of the reasons why i really do respect you in terms of you recognize that um and maybe it's because you haven't <laughs> in America, and, <laughs> and clouded by the craziness that is going on here, but you recognize the difference between a little white boy walking the street and a little black boy walking the street and Torn and I often and I know there 's lots of folks in social media that talk about you know i 'm a mother of two six foot three uh black males in America, and you know we almost have to teach masking just to keep them safe and so Torrin talks about uh, the uh, the having to do certain things so that you don't get in trouble, because of course, Torin is a different person than I am, and he is a tall black male in New York. And so what are your your thoughts on that? Or is there any um i haven't gotten to all of the book is there anything in the book that sort of addresses that or can you speak to that just a little bit for the listeners because i do think it's important for for folks to recognize that sounds great right to to stem freely but if you're you know touring walking down the street and in new york it's a whole different can of worms um so what do you have to say karen
2: We do we do address that in the book. We have a we have a chapter on the narrative around unmasking or taking the mask off, or however you want to kind of to kind of view that and the privilege that it takes. Firstly, to be able to recognise that there are aspects of yourself that you can change, and then secondly, the privilege that you have the agency to do so, which many people don't have that because they're not safe enough to do that. So, for someone like Torren, um, you know, who's going to have a very different experience if you melted down on the on a street corner torrid you're going to have a very different experience to me melting down on the I'm, street I'm corner shot.
0: like i'm just being exactly I'll
2: shot. The, the, you know you know there might be there might be negative aspects to my experience i might get arrested i might get taken away there might be mental uh, uh institution involved but you're you're at risk of death you know so there's a there's a whole other level there and again that's why intersectionality runs through the whole core of the book that we wanted that to be able to kind of you know for people to understand that that there are different autistic people intersectionally experiencing very different things who are at far more risk than some other groups and um, in different ways and I think oh, there's so there's so much there and even even incorporating what you were saying about or kind of IAPs and things like that if you think about autistic people as a group are one of the most vulnerable groups on the planet intersectionally or not there are such high levels of self-harm and suicide massive levels of interpersonal victimization where we get treated negatively from bullying all the way up to abuse um by people who know us so that's people who we should be able to trust friends family members professionals around us um such high levels of all sorts of different things and then if we think about masking itself as that as an aspect of that being fawning then you are—you have a group that's at its most vulnerable when it is in childhood. And if it's not safe enough for them not to please other people, what are you teaching that child? That, Like you said, Torrin, that people in authority, and that doesn't always mean a teacher, that doesn't always mean a boss, that could mean a grown-up. That could mean um, someone who, I don't know, you walk into a shop and it's the shop owner has some level of authority over you. So you are then more likely to be fawning, which makes you more likely to be open to victimization, to abuse, to being treated negatively, to putting yourself in dangerous situations without even realizing how you got there. with have with, with, you know, there's a, there's a narrative here in the UK around autistic people who end up in bad situations and end up being arrested. And then completely take the blame for everything when other people have done stuff you know because they're still fawning and people pleasing and all of those narratives are around you so what a lot of the school system does and and things like applied behavioral analysis and stuff like that it encourages that level of fawning it takes away the agency it takes away the boundaries denies those boundaries and doesn't enable you to act in any way which is authentic Now, when you do have those intersectional experiences, you do have to have some control. You have to have some control over that, which is where masking by itself is not inherently a negative thing because it's actually a skill set that can keep you safe in some situations. So that becomes an important thing. It's when you're doing it all the time and it takes over your life. That's when it becomes massively detrimental and negative because all humans mask to some degree. We all change our behaviors in certain situations. But it's when you are doing it constantly and it becomes such a constant behavior, it becomes unconscious and it's using up massive amounts of your energy. And all you're doing is running around trying to present a version of yourself, which is safe for as many people as possible so that you're kept safe from them. That's really going to suck up all of your energy and, and impact on your physical health, your mental health. So so what I would say to any kind of, you know, and this is a white man preaching to black people and I don't want it to come across like that. But what I really would say is that we have to keep our children safe, but we also have to think about long-term, what is the impact of that on them? And we can't have all the pressure on autistic people to, to try and protect ourselves and make us feel safe. This is about changing how school systems work. This is about changing professional understanding of what autism is and what autistic experience is. This is about actually how do we change society in a positive and constructive way to make it inclusive? Because it isn't inclusive at all. It's very much centered on very narrow experiences and, you know, put certain people in in position of power that should never be there. (laughs) You know, so so all of that does need to change. But in the meantime, what we can do is create islands of safety for people, places where someone doesn't have to feel like that they can't be authentic because they're surrounded by people who are open and accepting. You know and then empowering them to be able to go into spaces or have control over which spaces they go into so that they don't have to mask as much. so they don't have to be as inauthentic as much. you know so so a lot of this is around self-education and around empowerment, but also around bringing autistic people together and having community connectedness because really that's the key to everything. It's that we are have been kept apart for so long and we do need the opportunity to come together and learn from each other. That's the only way things are going to change for us.
0: No, I think yep. that's great. And by the way, don't don't wor- ever worry about preaching to, to anything. This, you're the expert, and the stuff you say is so crucial. And how you say it and how you're able to back it up with research is so important. So don't ever worry about preaching any of that, like, intersectional stuff about, like, who can say what to who. Because when there's smoke, there's fire, and you start spitting it. So just keep doing that. Um, we're gonna have to start wrapping this up. As much as I'd love to to keep talking, so uh, wax we'll you. If there's anything you'd like to say, but I'm sure it's something Stacy really wants to say. I'm sure of it. So,
1: well, so I mean, listening, it, it, I'm just like this is why we have to shift the narrative around everything autism. We have to talk about it. I mean, I just it, and you know what I appreciate is I was alone in this narrative and thinking right years ago and i'm so that's why i get so excited because i'm like oh my gosh there are other people that that see it the way i see it you know it's it's not ludicrous not that i thought it was but it's nice to have conversations with folks who get it and so my my i get pushback from colleagues because they're like well you know the school system i'm like if we all just sit around saying, well, that's just the way it is. I mean, we, I'd still be, you know, uh, slavery women would still be, you know, with no voting. I mean, what is this about? Like, Get up off your ass and say something about something that is not right. And so thank you so much. Um, I wanted you to to just let, I know uh I don't know if the listeners know that you are in UK and I know the hardback is um has been released uh in the UK. I have the Kindle version. I pre-ordered my hardback. So when is it supposed to be available in the states? Is it end of September or October?
2: End of September. I don't right. know the exact day, but it was, should be the end of September. So I just you just have to keep checking. Um my website it will be up on my website the moment we know exactly what the date will be. It will be up on my website. So um but yeah you can get it amazon any 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 good bookshop should be carrying it so
1: well i've already talked to my uh colleagues in the states who are educators at the university level and i'm like all right this book's coming out you better figure out how to fit it into your curriculum next fall well spring because it will be fall so yeah it's just it needs to be um thank you so much for the commitment to put it out, as Torin said, uh, quite a task, it sounds like it. And I'm sure to, to write and then the research and all the I mean, I was really just I didn't know what to expect. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, like, there's like, like, uh, uh, citations. This is like, so good. Um, so thank you so much. And thank you for making my month of August.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're, we're both we're both big fans of your training. I don't mean to to too much like on air but we're both big fans of your training um i believe we both take the what is autism training that was big for me and understanding myself and the history of autism and the way you put things such as how you explain how our research about autism is based off a literal nazi which i actually didn't know about before i'm like a hipster where i'm like i knew about like hans asperger's nazi past before it became popular but how you put that and how that still has ripple effects today. It's really great. And I'm glad you keep doing those. Is there any last thing you'd like to say before we get going?
2: Thank you for having me. It's I really
0: <laughs> thank you for coming yeah, on. It... No, you're you're doing us the favor. This is we, we <laughs> no, we've no, had a no, no, couple no. episodes in a row which's been bucket list guests and and it's just been great.
2: No, it it's it's genuinely been a pleasure and it's it's what what i would like everyone to know actually is that that although the book is a big book and it's been published and blah blah amy and i didn't write it we're not making any money off of it it's not a book that makes us any money at all literally like about five cents for every book that, that, that that's that's sold you know so so and and for a book in our world you know we might sell a few thousand but it's not never going to be on the times bestseller list or anything like that but the reason that we wrote it is because we want change and we need change because effectively there is like you said Stacey, there is so much trauma so much trauma in our in in the autistic community in the wider autism community you know there, there's just so much trauma and what we need is to navigate out of that and we need to find our joy because there is so much joy out there as well. I'm sick of talking about the trauma. You know, it, it, it's so so much of what I do on a day-to-day basis is talking about such negative, awful things. And there is so much joy out there that we could be talking about instead. But we need to get over this hump in order to be able to get there, I think. And, you know, it's so, so yeah, the, the, the reason I said what I said was the book is about change. It's not about making anybody making money off the back of it or anything like that. It's it's about saving people's lives, which is really what we want
1: to do. I love
0: that. I love that. And that's why we are you, you met that that's not that isn't the order we go into it. <laughs> you messed up the outro. <laughs> Honestly, thank you for coming on. This is this has been amazing. And uh, Stacey, that's why we're working. See, I, I, I can't even do it now. We have a whole outro and I keep screwing up. That's why we're working to Shift the narrative on everything autism. God oh, damn it. <laughs> See ya.